a software company needs to get many things right in order to be successful. Having a useful product with solid engineering is only the beginning. Readme was started five years ago. The company solved a seemingly simple problem, documentation for software products. If you've worked as a software engineer, you have looked at documentation. You know that there is a wide range of quality among the documentation that exists for different software products. Readme solved the problem of documentation as a service, and it solved the problem better than any other company in the market. But after building a great business around documentation, the direction in which to take the business was unclear. How do you expand a documentation software business? Should you start building API management systems? Should you build lead generation tools? Should you try to sell products to developer evangelists? Greg Koberger is the CEO of Readme, and he joins the show to talk about the business, the strategy, and the fundraising process for Readme. Greg was previously on the show very early on in Software Engineering Daily's history, and he stood out as a guest that was remarkably friendly and willing to talk about a wide range of topics. In the previous show with Greg, he was about a year into his business. Today it has evolved, and it's been five years since Readme was started. We catch up on how his business has changed. Readme had become a profitable business very early on in its life. And in Silicon Valley, a quickly profitable business is the exception. So rather than structuring the finances of Readme with the expectation of successive financing rounds every 18 to 24 months, Greg took a slower approach. His company grew at a rate that was affordable while maintaining that profitability and without raising money from more venture capitalists. While Readme maintained profitability from its core product of documentation software, Greg patiently thought about what product to build next within the company. A software company will typically advance into adjacent markets, or will offer products that the current users of a software product are willing to pay additional money for. Eventually, Readme found its second product, developer metrics. Greg and his team figured out that gathering metrics around how APIs are being consumed has synergies with the core Readme product. With a second product, Readme was now able to forecast significant growth and market expansion. The company also gained an incentive to raise money. With additional money, Readme would be able to deepen the developer metrics product and hire a bigger team and think much bigger than they would have been able to with a single product company and a smaller total addressable market. Readme raised a Series A from Excel, which is one of the most respected venture capital firms in the business, and Readme is now entering a new period in its development. Readme is a fascinating case study in balancing ambition with financial discipline at a software company, and Greg is awesome, so I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. This podcast is brought to you by PagerDuty. You've probably heard of PagerDuty. Teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver high-quality digital experiences to their customers. 
With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building software. Over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent those problems from happening again. PagerDuty helps your company's digital operations run more smoothly. PagerDuty helps you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages, as well as capitalize on opportunities, empowering teams to take the right, real-time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit PagerDuty.com. I'm really happy to have PagerDuty as a sponsor. I first heard about them on a podcast probably more than five years ago, and so it's quite satisfying to have them on Software Engineering Daily as a sponsor. I've been hearing about their product for many years, and I hope you check it out at pagerduty.com. Gregory Koberger, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. It's been, I looked it up today, it was four years ago, October, that I did it for the first time. Yes. So. Yes. So... You started Read Me five years ago, and that show was four years ago. And today there's a lot of good news. You raised a large funding round. You are profitable. You've been profitable for a while. So there's lots of cause for celebration. And I definitely want to talk about the good news. Much of the conversations have centered around the difficulties of managing your own business. So I'd like to actually start off with something a little bit gloomier. Okay. So when you think back over the last five years, what was the hardest period of time in building the business? Ooh, there's been a lot of really tough times. I think, though, that I would say the hardest, you know, to the point where I, it was a weekend, it was Labor Day weekend, actually. So exactly a year ago from two days ago or whatever, I was just done. I couldn't do it anymore. I just wanted to quit. I didn't know who to quit to because it was my company and nothing bad had happened. There was like nothing specific. I don't remember what kind of like caused me. I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I just hated it. And it wasn't that I hated the people. Obviously it wasn't that I hated the product. I still think it was, you know, phenomenal. It was just after doing it for a bunch of years, it just kind of like caught up with me and I was just a little burnt out and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And then, you know, I kind of, luckily it was over a weekend. I had some time to think and everything. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to kind of flip it. And instead of being like, I'm done, I'm going to try to raise money and fix the problems with money. You know, the, the good thing about being profitable is that you kind of control your own destiny and all that. And if you can run it and be profitable, that's awesome. We did it. But the problem is you cut a lot of things out, things that you desperately need. You ask your, yourself and your team to sacrifice a lot, whether it be like just being like, oh, we'll get a real designer soon, or oh, we'll hire an extra engineer to help out with this, or an extra support person. Like you're asking a lot of these people to go above and beyond. And like after a while, like myself included, it goes after a while, it just sucks where you're like, oh, we just can't keep asking people to like kind of run on empty and go above and beyond. Our numbers were fine, but like, it, I just, there was some stuff like a, we needed a good story. We needed to kind of like get some numbers in line, things like that. Like, is our financials ready? So it took me a few months to actually like actually start raising money. But I started a few months after that. I decided, you know, that's when I decided just to actually raise money and gave it a few months to kind of like, you know, get ready for it and internally kind of promote some people, be ready for an influx of being able to hire after that. And then we started raising in about February or so of this, this past year. But I think that was my lowest point. The second lowest point was actually raising money. That was a miserable experience that I'm happy to talk about. About. And it went really well. So I actually can't complain, but it was just, it was so incredibly hard as well. So I think those were the two hardest, the two hardest for me. 
what you touched on there is one of the reasons I think I've enjoyed talking to you. My business is also fairly, I mean, it's not a business where I, I haven't raised any money. And I think you, you raised a very small seed round early on. You were profitable pretty quickly. And the advantage of having a business that's profitable is you have some freedom. The disadvantage is you are not incentivized to give up that freedom. You are not incentivized to go down the route of raising money. And if you don't get on the fundraising train, there's a lot of ways in which your business tempo falls out of line with the norms of Silicon Valley. What are the ways in which that's caused kind of like a disjunction? Because, you know, it's, it's, I think the cadence of your business is very different than the average Silicon Valley startup. Yeah, I think that was part of the frustration for me a year ago when I was like really burnt out. It was that I felt like I was putting a ton of effort into the company. And to a certain extent, it was starting to eat away at me that the vision for the company and the what we're doing day to day and the cadence, like you said, they just diverged. And you know, if I had 15, 20 years, we could have eventually built what we wanted to build, but we were just not able to get to it because we're very reactive when you build profitably. There's a reason why people raise money. There's different reasons, but at the end of the day, the reason you do it is because it's basically a loan and you need the money to kind of get ahead and like, you know, leapfrog a little bit and all that, and then hopefully catch back up and keep it going. But yeah, like you said, like it was just, there was so many things we wanted to do and I would just hated that I would go into the office and I'd be like, I want to do all things, but I have to fix this bug, right? Like, I was actually fixing bugs personally, but like, you know, we weren't able to the roadmap and every month would go by and we would do a ton of work, but like, it didn't feel like we we're doing a ton of work. It didn't feel like we were like releasing things in the cadence that we used to when we were smaller and had no customers or that we could, if we had a little more money and a little more time and, and a little more like just resources and, you know, not just resources as in like, for example, just being able to pay for software and things like that, but we able to hire new people, specialized people, things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a, there's, and like you said, like there's something kind of nice about things being about to fail. Cause it just causes you to like, you know, kick things into high gear when things are just going really well, not amazingly well, but just like really well, you never have the incentive to make that jump. So we want to do a series A for a while, not desperately. It was always just one of those like, yeah, we're going to do it someday type things. But it was never desperate. We never like really needed it. We never saw like, oh, that like we desperately need this. So we never like really went for it because it was always like, oh, I'll do it next month. And for something like that huge, it takes so much time and effort to raise money. Next month became next month, which came in next month and just never happened. Whereas at the same time, like we had this like idea for the product that I wanted to go down. And like at first I just liked the idea, but then it started to like really eat away at me that we couldn't build it because it was such a phenomenal, awesome thing that I knew we wanted to build. We just couldn't get to it because we just didn't have the ability to. We we're just playing catch up all the time. So yeah, it's a tough, like weird. It's a really nice problem to have that you know we were able to pay all our bills and we we're growing steadily. And we we're hiring new people and all that. So it's a great problem to have. But yeah, we things have changed since last time we saw. Because I kind of like raised some money and hopefully putting it to good use so far. Okay, so the reason that you are in that nice problem to have situation is because your core product is documentation. And documentation as a service is something that there's a huge need for. There's a huge audience of people that need documentation. Almost every software company needs documentation of some kind. Some companies need externally facing documentation. So this software has extremely high retention, has good revenue properties, good recurring revenue properties. 
But the way that I saw it from the outside looking in, it's not clear what the obvious expansion is. Like, there's a lot of things that you can sort of squint and say, yeah, a documentation company could expand into this market or that market. What were the different markets that you considered expanding into or tried to expand into? How did you think about the the growth when you were in that profitable stage? Yeah, so documentation is not my passion, even remotely. The, or at least paragraphs of text are not my kind of, not my passion. I don't get up and be like, you know, I'm really excited to give people editing tools. And if that was my passion, then maybe I want to go more towards where like Notion's going or something like that. Like there's these really cool companies out there. What I always want to do from day one was build a, make APIs dead simple to use. And documentation happens to be the UI or the UX that people look at. So if you like close your eyes and think about like your favorite API and kind of imagine it. I know it's kind of a, a nerdy thing to, to ask people to do, but like it's probably, it was probably Stripe or Twilio, honestly. And you probably imagine like the documentation and it's not just paragraphs of text that's great about it. It's, they have such a cohesive user experience. And that's what I've always wanted to build. That was always kind of the next level that I always wanted to get to, which was documentation that's just static, that you and I see the same thing is not good documentation, or at least it's not where we should or could be. So the big thing we always want to do is let people send API logs to us and then start customizing the docs based on what we know about you. So if it's your first time going to the documentation, you should see an onboarding flow. You should see some marketing pages. I mean, you should see a sign up link. And then you go through this onboarding flow and you get next steps and all that. But if it's your hundredth time to the documentation and you know we know that your API is down because you're getting a ton of 500 errors, first of all, we, readme should be the one that alerts you of it. We should send, you know, be like, Jeff, just so you know, you're using, you know, Lyft's API and, you know, 80% of your stuff has failed over the past week. You should check that out. And then we should help you fix it. And we should, the documentation should know exactly what's going on and help you debug. So I never wanted to be the best documentation company out there, unless you kind of look at documentation the way I do, which is like an umbrella word for anything that's like usability related for APIs. What I want to do is kind of build like intercom for APIs is how we talk about it, which is a bunch of awesome tools for developers, product people, support people, salespeople that's backed by a ton of data and is different for each person and like helps support people debug and lets you send targeted message to people like, you know, segmenting your thousand users down to hundred users who are using version one and kind of telling them, hey, we've upgraded the API. Some companies can do all this already, like big companies have the infrastructure for this. Most companies don't have it. And we like documentation. I like documentation, not because of documentation, but because it's that's just kind of the real estate when it comes to an API. So people touch and feel you can add tons of new features to it without having to like build a whole new product and start removing. That's what I love about Intercom was like, I used to have a suite of 20 tools that I would use, and now I have one. And I think we can do that for APIs. Like we can do API monitoring. We can do emailing your API customers. We can do support forms or mailing lists, things like that, very seamlessly, and no one really notices. So that's why I like documentation. So that was a long rambly answer. Hopefully it kind of answered your question, but like that was always where we wanted to go. It wasn't like we kind of sat down and were like, okay, we've kind of conquered this. What's next? Like this was always what we wanted to do. And that's what started to eat away at me was that, you know, it had been four years and I was like, I've been talking about this for years. I've been giving talks at conferences for years. And like, I haven't actually been able to really build what I've been talking about. And you made some efforts at building products around APIs, like throughout the years, right? Can you tell me about the efforts that you made? And I think it's interesting because the last time we spoke, you mentioned that the failures kind of led to success or you, you learned about, you learned more about what you should be building through building something that was not 
the the best product. Yeah. So we're only talking about the. Best. I swear, normally I'm pretty sane and, uh, and don't I, have problems, and but uh... I, you know what? I'm we're gonna we're gonna get to more positive information eventually. <laughs> it was funny because you know right before the conversation, you were like, oh, you know, now we're gonna have a more positive conversation. I was like, oh, that's not how my questions begin. Uh, well, that's okay. This is the more fun or the more interesting stuff to talk about too. So yeah, about like two years ago, maybe a little more than that. About two years ago, I just same thing happened. I just got. This maybe a, every six or eight month cycle where I'm like really frustrated. And I was frustrated where like, again, I give a conference talk. I don't talk at conferences often, but I like them because they kind of like help me clarify my thoughts on APIs and things like that. So I, you know, I'll go to like maybe an API conference or write a blog post or something. And like, I'll talk about how APIs are I'll, like just random things I'll throw out. I'll be like, you know, APIs are meant to be simple. Like the only goal of your API is to be used. Uh, if no one you can figure out how to use your API. It's not a good a- API. Like they should be simple. It should be simple. And then I get back to the office and it's like, oh, this big customer wants us to add, you know, a nested array inside a blank in this weird edge case. And I'm like, oh, this is like not what I wanted. This is not why I'm doing this. I'm not doing it to help people like build the most complex because APIs are literally just, or sorry, you know, companies are just basically really easy early on and they spend all your time just working on edge cases and all that. And like a company just at You're some point- You're talking about building the documentation software. Oh, I mean, just no, sorry. Like when you're building a company, like when you're building a SaaS app, you start with a really clean idea and then you just spend a ton of time building out like edge cases for customers. And that's what we were doing. And like- Edge cases for the documentation product. Exactly, exactly. And I was just getting frustrated where I was like, we should be spending 80% of our time making APIs easier to use, not adding more complexity. So I got really frustrated and I started like working on this like little side project. You know, this is around the time when Lambdas were getting really big like serverless stuff is getting cool and I was like that's what API should be like it should be like a function call you know some people might call that RPC others might call it you know there's a lot of different ways to, to look at it but at the end of the day I was like I like calling a function I don't like calling APIs so we started to explore this thing and you know or I had this thought was like if we hosted the documentation and the API we would know literally everything. So the documentation could be the most amazing thing in the world because I know that you've never used this API or you're a heavy user of it or you're used to use it or you're getting 500 errors. Like our documentation now shows like all the possible errors because that's, you know, we just have to do that. Whereas like if we knew what error you were having, we could hide all the errors away unless you were getting a 500 or 503 error and then we could show that and be like, here's the docs you're looking for. So this would basically be if I'm an internal user at a company or if I'm an external user, like if I'm a consumer of a Twilio style API, you can imagine a function hosting service on README where if I'm consuming this API, I make a function call. If something goes wrong, I could get in my terminal or debugging or whatever, I could get information fed to me from the README documentation so that my error message is, is tells me exactly what I need to do. Yeah, like your error, like in this like product we built and the Lambda stuff's actually not important. We kind of abstracted all that away. We used Lambda, but the, yeah, the nice thing was like you would get an error and there'd be a link and you click the link and it'd take you to a web, like the website. And in this website, you could see like the actual log. You can see the, oh, here's how to fix it. You can see comments from other people on how they fixed it. If that still isn't enough, you could like open a support ticket and include it right in there so that like the person who created the API could like help you out. Uh, we took care of billing. So we could tell you like, oh, the reason it's not working is because your credit card failed. Like here's how to fix it. Like there's so many cool things that we thought we could do if we built documentation that wasn't like statically generated on like Jekyll or something like that. If it was like knew exactly what was going on with the API. It's kind of like if you go to Facebook, like you expect 
everything to kind of know what's going on. It's really bizarre if you think about it to go to API documentation and it has no clue what's going on with you. Like everywhere else on the internet, it was just kind of like a random idea I had and it started being like really cool. We all started really liking it. The more features we build, the cooler it got. But it was unlike README, the main product, you know, we call this README build. It just, no one really wanted to use it. People wanted, it just was too simplistic. It was too like made up in someone's like fantasy world of like, wouldn't it be great if, and like at the end of the day, everyone was like, well, cool. It's really great if I wanted to build like a 10 second API, but like we're not gonna use it. And we have people using it, but like no one wanted to pay for it. There was no obvious way to charge for it. And I went into it not because I did it. I went to it because it was like basically like kind of like a product, like fantasy, like wouldn't it be amazing if type thing. So we stopped working on that and like went back to the main product. And like one of the things we really realized in doing that was like, we don't have to choose one or the other. We can take all the cool stuff from that and bring it into README. So that's kind of where we've been going over the past year. So like rather than like actually completely integrating the API and telling people how to write their API and all that and the docs, uh, we get 80% of the benefits just from having companies send us the API logs now. So we can still customize it. We can still do everything I just mentioned, but people can still host it on their own infrastructure. So it's kind of since then, it's been a, it's been a lot of just taking the ideas and the amazing stuff we came from that. Some of the stuff that didn't work, we let fall away, but like some of the amazing stuff, like kind of taking that and pulling it into README itself. Some like random cool things that I really like about it is, you know, we built a SDK that hid away all the URLs and all that. And like that made it really nice. So we're bringing that into README. We spent some money and bought the API gem and package and like in Ruby and Python and Node and all that. So we own API everywhere. So like we'll bring that back we can make APIs simpler at the SDK level. So that's an example of like, is an SDK documentation, not even remotely, but like if you consider documentation, just anything that makes the API easier to use, like an SDK can smooth over a lot of the rough parts. So, you know, like if I tell you to use my API and like I give you an API key, like you don't know how to send the API key and should it be a header? Should it be a query pram? Like how do you send an API key in? An SDK can just make that really easy. It can take care of behind the scenes, like URL encoding things properly and all that junk. You know, we've kind of taken that. We've done, so we're going to like repurpose the, the API package for all that kind of stuff. We ha- show logs right in the documentation. So when you go to the docs, you can actually see all your logs and like click it. And if something's wrong, you can open support requests with the log. And like both people, like you and I are looking at the exact same thing if you're, you know, the support and all that. So that was kind of a nice thing. It was bad that we spent a lot of time on this thing, but like it was great to kind of like, it was really nice to be able to step back as a thought experience and, experiment and be like, okay, if we could just throw everything away and like build the best API documentation possible, what would it look like? And we did that, and now we can bring it back to the main product. What I love about that story is that this is one of the reasons I really fell in love with software and software businesses is because you have these stories like, okay, you basically maybe, you know, woke up in the middle of the night one day and one evening and you thought, oh, let's, let's do a Lambda based product. Like that's it. And then the next day you're like, yeah, that still sounds like a good idea. You come in, you tell the team, you know, the team starts to like, believe it. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do it. Let's jump into it. Over time, you start to interact with users. They don't want it. I mean, I've built things like that. I built too many things like this. <laughs> As have I. I. I know so many people who have built things like this. You build something, you may go down a one to two year journey of building something, and then you just have to wake up one day and say to yourself, this is, I mean, this is why YC's motto is build something people want, because 
a lot of software engineers end up building things that nobody wants, yep. and that's not a fun experience. Maybe yeah. fun for the first year. Oh, it's great at first, yeah. But then it's like, oh, it's like I've wasted all my money, I've wasted all my time, and I have nothing to show for it. But the beautiful thing is that sometimes the learnings or the artifacts from that process are exactly what you need. And it, my understanding is that this was like the product that came out of this, the developer metrics product or the API metrics product was was crucial to kind of getting the company to that next level where you actually were able to raise money and kickstart the company to the next level that you wanted to be at. Yeah, definitely. We're really lucky that we're looking at this in hindsight because there were some ups and downs and all that. And yeah, exactly. It was, I mean, I kind of think of it as... Am I painting a rosier picture than it than it actually was or... No, I don't think it was ever that bad. We never spent that much time on it. It was just this okay. like fun side project and it kind of let us exper- like experiment. And like, I think, you know, starting projects... It doesn't always have to be, you know, you start a lot of projects and I have too. I've started so many projects and I don't think there's anything wrong in not finishing them or not having them be a huge success because it's kind of like sports. A lot of times with sports, you spend a lot of time, you know, practicing and all that. And, you know, not everything has to be the World Series. Sometimes it's just a practice and you learn from it and get something out of it. Even if all you get out of it is realizing that that was a bad idea and you can kind of move on from the idea. So yeah, I don't, I don't think thus far, I haven't done anything too much to screw things up and all that. You know, 80% of the time, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, you know, it's very, the company's very even keel. I'm not just waking up every morning and being like, I had this new idea. Um, do you know, uh, of Heaton Shaw. He's a started Kissmetrics. He was on the ten- show a while ago. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So he talked about this thing. Maybe he talked about it on the show too. Uh, I didn't listen to the, the episode, but they used to call them Heaton Bombs. Are you familiar uh, with that? It's basically he would like some employee, he, he like wrote about himself, but he was like, he didn't realize that people would call it that where he would come into the office and like wow. have this like brilliant idea that was going to change the company. And at first that's great, but then like people just started rolling their eyes because they'd be working on something and then it would divert the company completely. And then they would work on that. And then like two days later, he'd have the next brilliant idea. And he talked about himself, like how looking back, he was like, oh, it must've been horrible. So you have to be careful not to be like that. And you know, we're, we're not like that. We've had, we've been pretty even keel luckily, but that doesn't mean you can't once in a while as a company, like try to shake things up a bit. Had we not gone down this ultimately failed route, which didn't take that much time or that much money or it didn't hurt us that much, but had we not gone down that route just a little bit. I think it would have been harder to convince ourselves that like, okay, fine. People didn't want the actual product, but they loved some of the ideas we were putting out there. And they responded incredibly well to those. Like we already have 3000 customers. Let's just bring those features to the existing customers. Like, it's not like we were like off building something that wasn't anything to do. We're building both. We're just at the end of the day, an API documentation platform. So yeah, it was really great to kind of like swerve and then swerve back. What have you learned about management in your five years running this company? Ooh, so many things. One thing that I am really lucky that I had before I started Readme was that I had worked for really great managers who I'm still very close to today and very horrible managers. And the nice thing about working with horrible managers is that it sucks at the time, but you realize that being a great manager is not easy. Like it takes a lot of work. I think a lot of people probably just assume that management's an easy thing and it is not even remotely. So the things I learned about management since I actually started the company though, I was always bad at delegating. I think, you know, you're you're kind of in the same position where like you've been working alone. Oh, sorry, not that you're bad at delegating. Maybe you are. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Very bad. Well, I think it's because like that's the nice thing about founders, like people who start something is that you do everything. Like you do everything. And 
that's how you start a company is that no one cares about you and no one's going to help you out. And that's okay. You, you start you, to assume that's the only way to do it. Exactly. And you build the website and then you actually do the episodes yourself. And then you like do figure out marketing because you've never done marketing before. I'm kind of like projecting on you, but like, I assume that I'm not far off where like you just spend a ton of time, you know, you're like, well, we have to do sales now. I guess I'm doing sales now. And you, you build up this thing where it, you just do everything and that's really tough to delegate and i was never against delegating and i think that's a scary thing i think i always felt that i was the kind of person that would delegate so i'm not against delegating i don't think i'm better than other people i don't think i'm better at things than other people it's just you're just in this mode of like doing stuff and like management's tough like you tell you well, first of all you can't tell people to do stuff because you know you have to like it has to be a collaborative process even though you're technically their boss and like it's very asynchronous and like you're just kind of like okay i did nothing today even though you had the busiest day and you spent <laughs> like you know 18 hours in, not 18 hours but like you know 12 hours in meetings or 10 hours in meetings or even just four meetings and like the, the hardest thing for me has been my metric for what a day is a good day's work has been very different like I used to know that I did a lot of work that day because I had made a lot of stuff out of, I could, you know, come and show you what I did today. I mean, like, you know, with my laptop, be like, look, I designed that or I like programmed that or I sold that. Whereas now I don't get that immediate feedback. And I hopefully my hourly, like when I put an hour in it, it, the energy I put into something like comes back way more because someone else is out there focusing on it and doing it. But like, it doesn't feel that way sometimes. And management can get a little depressing where you don't actually do anything sometimes. So one thing that I force all of our people managers to do at the company is we do work from home Wednesdays and I make everyone who's a people manager like realize that that's their day to be an IC, a independent contributor. Like they, if they're a programmer, program. If you're a salesperson, sell. If you're a whatever you are, do it. Because it's, we don't have any just managers at the company who are just like, you know, career managers. Um, everyone's been promoted from a IC position. And I think it, People, I think all my managers enjoy being managers and really like it, but I also think that it's, I know how hard it is to like go from like writing code all day to like just being a manager and it, it's a little weird. So I, I try to push everyone to kind of like take one or two days where like they get to do what they like to do and they like to manage as well. Everyone that's doing it like really likes that, but like if nothing else, what they're comfortable with doing, even if it's not the best use of their time, um, I think it is the best use of their time to reduce burnout, to reduce, you know, that kind of the issues that come with it. looking for a job is painful. And if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high, because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to vettery.com slash sedaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters, so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. 
we all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash S-E daily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Have you done something to differentiate the hiring process or the hiring culture because you are in such a different position than the like startups that have raised tons and tons of money and they're on that funder i guess you're on the kind of the fundraising treadmill now but it's it seems like to a lesser degree because you're still i don't know if you're profitable well, we're a little out of profitability at this point you don't want to be profitable at this we're point. close to yeah it would be a bad thing otherwise we're just kind of collecting interest and right. no one likes that but yeah i want to get out of profitability i want to get not too far out i don't know how much money yeah to answer your question i mean when you're let's say that you start a company and people love the idea and they give you a ton of money you have a ton of money you have to just you know kickstart and go quick so you have a bunch of money and you start doing things like you hire awesome people from awesome companies that have a proven track record because they're very expensive but you know they're going to work and like and show up and that creates a bunch of like culture issues all that as well sometimes it's really great a lot of times it's really great a lot of times it's bad because we drew a little more like profitably and all that we had an opportunity to kind of find people that were special in their own unique ways. And I'll talk about the interview process in a second, but you know, I think that contributed to it. And we had a little time to like let these people grow and then build out teams and promote people and not just bring in a bunch of like middle managers and all that. Like, you know, everyone, like I said, that sort of the company started as an IC and has moved up and I couldn't think of better people to do it. And hopefully we'll see, ask me again, you know, a few years when I'm back on the, on the podcast, but you know, I'm really hoping that it helps us build like an awesome culture that's more sustainable. So we do things like for technical interviews, we don't do kind of technical, you know, jargony, like, you know, anything on the whiteboard and the cliche things we have tech for the technical stuff. We have people do one thing. It's um, bring their own project to work on in front of us. And it's such a great way to find people that, so we can only do it because we're relatively small. Like if you're Google, you can't compare two people, but it's such a great way to like, there's a few great things about it. First is that you see what people actually are like in an environment they're used to. You know, if I'm interviewing you and we have an hour interview, like you might spend the first 25 minutes just trying to understand why I did certain things. And I'm asking you questions like, well, why'd you do that? And you're like, I don't know. I just thought of this for the first time. I just didn't know this existed five minutes ago. You don't care about the problem you're solving. So like your answers are just kind of, I don't know, they're not great answers because you don't, know why you're making these technical decisions because you thought about it for 13 seconds in someone else's code base or someone else's problem. Whereas if you bring your own thing that you've been working on for a few weeks or a few months or even a brand new idea that you haven't had, that you, you want to kick off, like I get to see what people are like in their actual environment, which is going to be true after three months of working at Readme, you'll be pretty okay with the, with the environment. And like you get to ask them questions and like the answers are so much more thoughtful. It's like, well, why did you use this? And the answer is, oh, well, I used this because I used Mongo because, you know, we originally used Postgres and we switched off it for Mongo because of, and it doesn't really matter what the answer is, but like you actually get real answers as opposed to like, why'd you do it that way? And they're like, it was the first thing I thought of when you do technical interviews. Sometimes when like you ask them to do something specific or solve a problem or debug or whatever. 
So we get to do that. And that's something that like most companies don't get to do. And because of that, we found some amazing people that maybe wouldn't have hired otherwise, but like, we just got to see how creative they were or like some people really impressed me with their ambition with like what they wanted to build or their excitement to rewind a little bit. Like the first question I ask everyone who interviews is, uh, I asked two questions and that's pretty much my only interview is I ask what is the coolest thing you've done or built. And I get so much out of that. Like I doesn't matter what it is. Some people say technical things. Some people are like, can I say something not technical? And I'm like, sure. And they're like, well, I just built this like table and like, I'd be like, well, like, how'd you do it? And they're like, well, I went up to like, you know, Berkeley and I got wood and like, I brought it down and I polished it and sanded it. And like, I don't care what it is. Like, obviously we do a technical interview, like I just mentioned. So like, we're not just letting people in because they like building wood tables, but like, I just really like people who like get passionate and excited about stuff. And if someone says like to me, if they're like, oh, well, you know, I built this like reporting system at my last company. And then if I try to dig into it, I'm like, well, why did you choose to do that? And they're like, well, my boss told me to. And I'm like, oh, well, uh, why'd you like, what'd you use programming language wise? And they're like, I used, you know, Node. And I'll be like, well, did you like, like Node? Did you, why'd you decide to use it? And they'll be like, I don't know, my boss told me to. And like, I'm not saying that you have to do stuff outside of, you have to program outside of work. I think that's a lot to ask of people, but like, I just like people who are thoughtful and excited. And if they can get passionate about it, like a wood table that they're sanding down, then they can probably get excited about like read me and all that. So yeah, we've been kind of really lucky that we've been able to hire in a different way and find like just awesome, amazing diamonds in the rough type people, or just like really junior people. Or they're not junior. They just don't have the resume to back it up. And we've been incredibly lucky with, uh, with who we've been able to hire due to that. Let's come back to the developer metrics product, the API metrics product. So you built this API hosting product. You know, initially the idea was we're going to allow people to spin up APIs on this service and it'll be tightly integrated with the documentation. Over time, you sort of inverted it and said, people are already hosting their documentation. What if we just allow them to insert or decorate their APIs with with this kind of functionality? What's the insertion point if I want to add... Well, I guess first, describe what the API metrics product does. What does your second product do? Yeah, so I can give you a quick like overview. It's great. There's two different ways to look at it if you're an API creator or an API consumer. So if you're an API creator, well, if you're a consumer, you're just kind of along for the ride. You, have to, you can only use it if the API you're using uses it. But if you're the API creator, you... It can do a lot of, you get, first of all, you just send API logs to us. And that's not exciting. There's a lot of companies that do API logging or logging in general. But the cool thing about us is that the, we don't just show logs, we show the actual users. And you can see statistics. You can see like, oh, I have, you know, 2,000 people using my API. You can start segmenting it. You can see only people who have gotten 500 errors on version one of the API in the past six months, things like that. And then that lets you do things like make more informed decisions. And like, can I deprecate version one? And you're not only just looking at like just raw traffic like you would with google analytics maybe you're actually seeing the actual company so maybe you're only getting like one user still using version one but that one user happens to be your biggest customer and like that's good to know or a big customer and that's really good to know and when i tell people about this everyone's always like oh there's other that exists already and then like does it though and you know no one's doing this except unless you're like a big company like you know stripe or twilio and have built it internally and it's so obvious because you know that's why back to intercom intercoms and so well against Zendesk is because with Zendesk, you're just, 
and they fixed this a little bit, but like with Zendesk, you're just getting an email and you're responding to the email and like you have no context. But like you start using Intercom and it's like this person signed up six months ago. They've been using you. They stopped using you a week ago. Like you can actually see like the actual user and it made the inter- the support so much like better. You can also do things like, this is not just an intercom thing, this is an everything. Um, a lot of services do this, but like being able to target certain people using the API and be able to say like, either be have it triggered and be like, oh, you are about to hit your limit or your API limit or, oh, you are, you know, you're getting much 500 errors, here's how to fix it. Or, hey, we're deprecating the version of the API you're on in about a month. Like being able to segment users and contact them is something that is really difficult to do right now. So that's on the creator side, the API creator. Then on the consumer side, APIs are a black box. You send something to the API, you get something back and you have no clue what's going on. Most API sites are statically generated. So you can't, there's no like, maybe they'll have an intercom widget or something, but like there's no great way to ask them questions or talk about it. Most people go to like Stack Overflow or someplace else. And you know, you don't know what's going on. Like you, the docs don't know about your API, your API usage. So it's all just generic stuff and you're just reading through a bunch of edge cases you don't need to know about or care about. But if the API logs are actually like right in the docs, you can actually like see the errors in real time and like see your own statistics and be like, oh, I've had an uptick. Cause maybe having, you know, 404 errors, 25% of the time is totally normal. Other times it's a spike. And just being able to like debug stuff yourself is hugely helpful. Being able to get customized support where the person giving you support can actually like look at the logs. Like, you know, they, we have a dumb video we made uh, for the launch. And like, you know, one of the things is like this guy, this woman comes out and it's like, my API is not working. And the person who created it, it's like, it works for me. And like, I think that's very typical. I watched of, that video. Oh, did you? <laughs> it was fun to make. I was my, uh, it actually turns out the actor in it, a guy named Kevin, he goes by Kevin Webpage, is actually a README user at pager duty and he's also an actor on the side and i was like that's, that's so cool. weird that he's oh, like weren't just people in your office no those are all like real actors oh god were they that bad you thought they were our or do you think that our my employees are so charismatic i and thought your going? employees were that charismatic i was like i want to go work uh, at readme i think they're all juggling oh and- good edit that out then uh, yes that's what the office is like every single day there's just people juggling <laughs> and uh everyone looks like a movie star and all that no, I wanted to be in our office and I wanted to use our actual employees, but I kind of got pushed towards a hiring a production Where'd company. Where did you hire a, oh, you hired a production company? Yep. Okay. They took care of everything. I did nothing other than pay them. And I showed up and all that and I wrote the script and all that. But yeah, that was fun. Uh, that'd be my next thing. If I couldn't do uh, anything in tech, I think movies would be fun. By the way, I think it's getting cheaper. I think you could have gone on Thumbtack. You probably could have hired individual actors. Mm-hmm. You probably could have hired a videographer. You probably could have saved a lot of money. I mean, I I'm with you on the delegating. Delegating, thing. we got it. We just we just went over this, Jeff. We gotta I gotta be better <laughs> I know, about this. I know, I know, I know. Then six months later, I'm like, you know, <laughs> like Quentin Tarantino you know, editing, right. and like people are like, well, we haven't we haven't gotten paid in months. Like I'm almost done with the final cut. Yeah, I I thought about that too, especially when I saw the price tag for it. It wasn't that bad. It's like a minute long commercial. I know. I mean, it was like, it wasn't that much. It was like fifteen or $20,000 or less than that. So. And it kept creeping up from like ten k. But but you saw how the sausage was made and you were like, come on. There was a lot of stuff going on. I, I would not want to do it. I was very impressed by uh, the team that did it. And they were great. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm glad I did not do it, even though it was, uh, I would have wanted to do it because it seems fun. But yeah, so that's kind of, yeah, that's the whole point of the product. Um, And then, so to use it, that was a hard time. So we wanted originally for it to be a proxy because we're like, this is working at the most leverage. Yeah, you, so you got to integrate this thing somehow. Yeah. So I was thinking proxy or gateway as they call them for APIs, but it's basically just a proxy. But like, then I was looking at like Kong and AWS Gateway and like, these are gigantic right. products that right, people right, are like right. really buying into and I don't want to compete with them partially because I don't want to compete with them like on a business level and partially because like, how do you make money 
against Amazon. Like they're just bottom of the barrel prices, but and really good product. And Kong is open source and free. Like how can we compete with that? First of all, and secondly. I don't want to compete with them because like I was looking at the products like they're just so nuanced. There's so much going oh, yeah. on. You can't build your, you can't expand into an API proxy, mm-hmm. but can you insert at the yeah. proxy? So what we can do is, you know, just getting API logs and that gave us like 90% of what we want as far as features go. So there's two ways to do it. You can either use a SDK right in the code. So like there's a node library or like you're using Ruby, something like that. Like kind of like you would throw in like bug snag or, you know, something like that. It's just like one or two lines of code and it takes care of it. Or most of the API gateways have a plugin architecture. So you can like, you know, for Cloudflare, for example, you can like add the readme worker to your Cloudflare thing and it'll just silently run. Ideally, it would have been nice if we could just like tail server logs, but the nice thing about what readme does compared to other logging stuff is we actually log the we know who the user is. It's not just like a random server log. It's we know who the user is. We know the data they've sent, data they got back. It's all very whitelisted or blacklisted, depending on how you do it. So it's not like we get sensitive data, but like at least you know the shape of the data and you know the SDK they've been used. Like it's, we didn't get enough information out of just server logs to do it that way. So but we did realize that just getting the logs was all we really needed. So you can either like put it right in your code base or you can put it in your gateways plugin. And then I proxy would have been better in a perfect world, but like, there really wasn't much that we wanted to do that we couldn't get from logs and logs is a lot easier to get people to, to deal with than a, than a full proxy. So you get logs streamed to you for the customers who are buying the developer API product and you, what are you doing? What are you doing on the server side? What do you to process them? And yeah, so we just throw it into a big database and then step one was just building like some basic, just a basic logging platform. We can like just see the logs. Step two is putting like metrics on top of it. So you can go into a user and like see like when they start using it and like their usage over time, adding graphs like that. Step three was just adding some nice UI around it. Like it's really cool if you could do like a, a replay of the API log and stuff like that. So we have all the information. We know it was sent. We know it was returned. Like let's say that you want to debug it. Like not just saying here's the log, but being like, here's the curl command to like run this exact API log or API call again, and then like debug it and tweak it. I'm like little cool features like that. And the logging stuff's not exciting to me. If we didn't, I wouldn't want to do that if we didn't have to do it. But like the stuff that you can do once you know, like actual user data is awesome. Like actually what's going on and like, it just makes it so much easier for customers to debug their own stuff. Like what kind of stuff can you learn from aggregating the API requests, it's, I mean, it's the users, right? The users, as well as the developers who are, I mean, the developers who are writing the APIs or integrating the APIs for whatever kind of API company, the Lyft API, for example. Lyft is a customer of yours, right? So the Lyft API, you know, their requests, I don't know if their requests come through the developer API product, but you know, theoretically it could. And you hoover in those logs, you analyze it, you can you know, give access to the developers who are building with the Lyft API to the logs of their customers calling the APIs, essentially. Exactly. It's so hard to talk about because there's like so many different like our customers and their customers and all that. So for example, like... Very subtle product, by the uh, way. I mean, probably seems obvious to you and I at this... I mean, when you told me about it, I was like, that's a great product. But it's probably subtle to a lot of people. Listening. Yeah, and I, I mean, first of all, I want to be subtle. I don't want you to use an API that hosts on README and think like, well, that was really flashy and showy. I want you to think, 
that was a really nice API. There's this guy that I am friends with, but he used to work at Twilio as uh, one of their first developer evangelists. His name is John Sheehan. I don't know if you've had him on the podcast or anything. And he built a company called, well, he worked at Twilio early on and built a company called RunScope, which is an API company. But he gave a talk at Heavybit, which you do know. And he worked from there, you said. And it was called Hero Makers. And I really enjoyed the concept. The concept of hero making is, for him, is you want so someone at a company takes a chance on your on on you they decide to use twilio or they decide to use readme and they are accountable to their peers and what you want is you want their peers to come to them and say hey awesome job with the api documentation or awesome job with blank and then you know deep down that like couldn't have done it without twilio or couldn't have done it without readme but like the whole point is you want to make heroes inside of companies who kind of get like a like a pat on the back because that makes them like you more and that makes and for us like Maybe it's not even peers, but like I want someone to pick README and then I want them to give feedback that like, oh, your API was really easy to use. And it's very subtle. Like what makes good API documentation, what makes bad API documentation, documentation is very subtle. And there's not like, like why is Stripe's documentation so much better than other ones? They all kind of look the same because they've all copied Stripe's design, but like Stripe still is the most beloved. And like, it's the reasons they do little things like, you know, when you make an API call, and you're looking at the docs, like the re- example response is an actual response with your data in it. When you copy and paste an API code snippet, it has your API key in it. And I can go on about like the other little details they do, but like the whole point is that none of it's supposed to be showy. Like if it starts to become showy, then that's bad. So it's all very nuanced and subtle and like little things like it's kind of little things that you're not even going to notice that you don't have to think about. Things like it just worked the first time because you'd have to struggle with like figuring out the URL encoding or figuring out, oh, this mime type was wrong. It should have been like, you know, this instead of this. Or I use, I I posted the data as a form instead of a encoded whatever. Like just this, like all this crap that APIs have that most API creators and consumers, creators don't think much about it because think it's obvious and consumers like struggle with. So I want to be very nuanced and all that. And just knowing data means that we can kind of like skip a step here or there. Just little dumb things like we can, we now show people a JavaScript code snippet if we know that they're using JavaScript or we'll show them a Python code snippet if we know they're using Python. And like, we don't make a big deal of it. We don't like pop up and be like, hey, we know you're using Python because we saw your logs and like, haha, we're clever. Like it's more just a like, oh, this is exactly what I needed. I didn't have to click a link, things like that. So I think subtlety, you, you mentioned subtlety. I think like, you know, I can talk about the grander parts of this, but like, I think the subtle stuff is the stuff that really excites me about all of this and the stuff that we can do with like the little subtleties that like, you don't ever think about, you just internally just keep being like, that was a really nice experience. That was a really nice experience. And like, eventually that's how it goes. Tell me how the creation of the second product kickstarted the company and how you well kick restarted whatever kick boosted and give me the we could talk a little bit about the fundraising process because i know you have a lot of thoughts there just take me from the creation of the second product to when you felt capable of raising the series a yeah unlike build i didn't want to do it without having money backing it up there's nothing worse than going out and pitching vcs or pitching customers or pitching anyone if you're not making money on it i don't think the money part's important in the sense that like you know oh they look at our revenue we're like that's a lot of money but more so that it just kind of like 
money is a really good proxy for like, oh, someone actually cares. And obviously, you know, money is more than just a proxy, but early on, you know, if you're making one or $2,000 or something, like for example, to rewind way back to when we did Y Combinator, I applied twice with the same idea. The first time we got rejected, the second time we got in, and the big difference was we were making money the second time. And it's such a small amount of money compared to what we're making now. It's nothing. And right now what we're making, hopefully, is a small amount compared to where we're going to be in five years. But like the difference between zero and like, I think we're making like $3,000 a month or something like that when we got into YC, like it just changed the conversation. Like before our first time in the interview there, the partners were like, why would anyone want this? Like, like they say something like, I don't think this. And I'd have to say, well, I think, and then you're just, it's like you both have opinions and like you have 10 minutes to convince the Y Combinator partners that you're right. Whereas when you have customers and they're like, I don't think this, and you can say, oh, well, these 10 companies are on my, like are willing to pay for it. That just kind of ends the conversation in a good way. Like, you know, the YC partners and good VCs in general don't bring ego into stuff. Like they have theories and they have, you know, theses and like they have opinions and all that, of course. But like most VCs aren't dogmatic. They just or they're not dogmatic about like approaches to stuff. They're dogmatic about like, oh, people really like this. Yeah. I like this now. And that's a good thing. Like that's, there's no point in having, because when you're too dogmatic and you're too idealistic, that's how you end up with, uh, you know, read me build that product that I built that no one wanted. You know, there's something you just, at the end of the day, you need users, you need people to pay for it or to, to contribute in some way. Yeah. So that was a big thing. I want to make sure that we actually have people using it and that people liked it and wanted it. And we had that, uh, we're making a good amount of revenue off it, which is really nice. And uh, it was almost a third of our revenue, I think, at the time we raised and growing. So people really, a smaller subset of customers, like the number of customers was was really small compared to our actual product. But uh, yeah, it showed and it just, it helped craft a story. Like we craft a story around it. Sometimes I kind of forget, you know, what was true and what was, um, not that anything was a lie, but like you kind of have to like craft a story and a narrative around it. So not that anything's ever a lie or anything, but like, you know, sometimes I forget like how many things we tried that didn't work and like you know we had to like move things around to different plans and all that and like uh when i say like disingenuous i don't mean like it was a lie but it was just kind of like it seems right now in hindsight it was so obvious like of course people want their api documentation to be tied to the api of course you know api documentation is better when it's personal and like i can talk about this really well hopefully i guess the listeners can decide, but like relatively coherently right now. Yeah. Whereas like, if you asked me a year ago, I'd probably be like, I don't know. I just think that like, if we had like a bunch of API logs, like I think we could be real. Um, so for example, one thing that I thought early on was that we could pitch people, have them send their API logs to us because it'll make the experience better for the end user. And we had a really hard time selling that to people. They just didn't care, I guess, or didn't, it wasn't the most important thing. Like they cared, they wanted bugs fixed. Like they wanted a better editor. They wanted like they're like the little things that were bothering them day to day to be fixed. So that's kind of why we built this whole like analytics platform as well. So you can like understand your users because that was something that they actually saw and used. So like our buyer was starting to get benefits as opposed to like just having to believe us that their users were get benefit. Does that make any sense? It's kind of nuanced with all these different people. But rather than just putting the logs in the documentation, we also built stuff for the API creator as well that was built on top of the logs so that they got instant value out of it as opposed to just having to believe that. Oh, okay. So meaning there's two product owners here. So if I'm, let's say I'm consuming the Twilio API, let's say Twilio is hosted on README. 
both the developer who is integrating the API and using it in their product and Twilio would want to know this information about the API, theoretically, in your mind. But you said you ended up not doing that? No, we did that. You did that. So originally, we were just focused on the documentation. And we were just like, send us logs and we'll show them to your end users. So we'd be like, hey, Twilio, send us logs. Again, Twilio is not, this is hypothetical. But like, we'd be like, hey, Twilio, like send us the API logs. Like go through security clearance, like pay more money, send us API logs. And then we're going to show it to your customers. And they were like, well... I don't see anything like it doesn't make my life easier. No one right, said that right, Twilio right. definitely didn't say that, but like no one said that, but like where people got really excited. They don't really have an incentive for that. Exactly. Where we, the incentive that we gave was like, we, we pivoted our conversation from like our sales pitch from like the best documentation ever to like, Oh, we'd ask questions be like, well, how many people use your API? And most people don't actually know that answer. Um, they don't feel like guesstimate or something. And they'll be like, Oh, like, well, like how do you email everyone in version one of your API? and tell them that you're gonna change. And they'll be like, oh, we don't really have a way to do that. Like maybe we can email all of our customers or all that, but like there's no way to segment. And like with that approach, people started to be like, oh, like I can't believe kind of these things I take for granted on a website, I need for an API. Like if I told you on a website, like, okay, can you see how many users you have? You'd be like, yeah, I know exactly how many. And like, what's the average bounce? Like how long have they been on the, like how long have they been on the website? You're like, oh, the average time of the website is like, you know, four minutes or whatever. Like, can you send an email to all your customers? You'd be like, yeah, of course I use customer.io or I use outreach or something like that. With APIs, you don't have it. And like, that was kind of like the, that was the thing that we started our customer interviews started to go from like, eh, to like, oh, can I start using it today? So yeah, like that's kind of what I mean when I say like it felt like very, it feels like very obvious and very smooth sailing to get here. But there's a lot of things where like I was really frustrated because I was like, I know we're onto something, and people would be like, eh, not into it. And it took a little time to like tweak the pitch and tweak the exact way. So it feels like a very smooth sailing, but it wasn't uh, even remotely that. And so were you actually selling the product? You were get you actually had customers when you started to raise the Series A. Oh yeah. We, uh, by the time we raised Series A, we we had a good number of customers on it. People were paying us for it. Yeah, it was going well. Okay, and so I think at least the narrative that I read in TechCrunch. Uh, I don't know to what extent this is actually true, but basically the idea was okay. If we're going to be ingesting developer API logs, we need to have proper security built around this, and therefore we're raising a Series A. I mean, that's certainly one reason to raise a Series A. There are a multitude of other reasons to raise a Series A. What was the reasoning for for starting to pursue that when you were when you had been in profitability for so long and now you had a new revenue stream? Why not just amp up the profitability? <laughs> yeah, because we still were just behind, and all of a sudden we're making like more money, but we we're also increased the service area incredibly. And so when I say things like you know security, I don't mean like you know things are insecure, but rather there's a lot of things that enterprises want in order for it to feel safe, like things like SOC 2 compliance. You could argue whether or not back and forth, whether or not that makes something more secure or not, but like it kind of does. And it definitely makes people feel like it's more secure. Things like just having so much data, like things were going really well. And then they started going a little bit worse because like the data store we were using just couldn't handle the, the load. And we had to like start changing stuff. And like, it's much like anything when you build it, at first it goes really well and then things start to break 
hopefully not devastatingly so, but just break in all certain types of ways. Like, okay, so we had a node SDK, but we needed to build an SDK for a bunch of other languages. Like that costs money. Like edge cases that people came up with, like bugs or company will come to us and use it, but like we didn't do this thing that they wanted or thought we should or whatever. And, you know, version one of the product's always the easiest version to make. So that was kind of easy. And we kind of raised money at the same time we like launched version one so that we could kind of like have that, the money kind of help us like expand the product a little bit. So... Okay. I want to begin to, to draw to a close. Do you, well, do you want to talk about the, the Series A process a, a little bit, maybe? Like, what was hard about raising money? What was hard about raising money in that, that Series A process? I'm happy to talk but about it. I just feel like sometimes it's a little bit like, because it's in the past, it feels very much like a first world problem because it went really well. But the thing that was really hard for me personally was that I'm a single founder. I'm by myself. I have an awesome team that I love and they're great. But at the same time, when you run a company, your energy kind of, and I hate saying this because it feels like a little egotistical to say, but like kind of seeps through the company. And it was such a tough juxtaposition for me to like be in a pitch meeting and talk about Readme and VCs poke at stuff. That's what, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like they don't want to, I mean, the good ones try to and i saw something about yc recently where they were like you know it's really easy to poke holes in something it's really hard to like have your first gut reaction to be like how can this be a billion dollar company and like try to like best case scenario like you know when you're found like you and i we don't think about problems we think about like how can we make this a, like of course your podcasting empire and my documentation company are going to be trillion dollar companies <laughs> of course. like of course you know all you need is to get like a billion users Absolutely. listening or whatever and like i'm being a little facetious but like no, you and I are not optimists. All. VCs, it's easier to be a pessimist. And actually, it's easier to be a pessimist about, like, other people's projects. And it just, like, so, like, it wasn't like anyone was, like, really criticizing or, like, that was going bad. But, like, you go through a pitch and, like, you have to keep the energy up in the pitch. And then, like, they just want to talk about all the bad things and you just get through it. And, like, afterwards, you're just like, oh, that sucked. Like, even if they eventually invest in you, they still want to poke holes and, like, all that. And it was just really hard to, like, just go back to the office and be like, it went well because you're like it went horrible then like everything around you starts to spiral and then you, your next pitch everything's already spiraling and just kind of like spirals on top of each other so it was kind of tough to like you know go to just pitch and go to meetings and all that and have like a lot of actual rejections but a lot of like just like micro rejections or like oh i don't really know type stuff and then go back to the office and like then put in a full because my job didn't stop like i still had to be people's managers i still had to like you know work on product stuff and make decisions, make sure bills were paid and all that stuff. Like my job didn't stop. So I think it was just, that was the hard part. It was just like, it's hard too, because like I would never go up to you and be like, uh, Jeff, your baby's ugly. But like VCs have no problem doing that around a company. And like, I know that a company, like at the end of the day, it's just a bunch they're of nagging code. You. But exactly. Like it's like, oh, they're definitely doing that because they're better negotiators and uh, they're very good at, every VC is very good at what they do. But like, I don't want people to say negative things about my company because first of all, I probably already know them. And secondly, like it just eats away at me already. And, and on top of that, like I built it and like you're just insulting what I just spent the last five years of my life on. And I'm not, I don't think of it that way. Like I'm very, you know, I didn't like go home and like cry and be like, oh my God, they don't like what I built. Like I don't think about that way, but like somewhere deep down, like you're like, screw you. Like I spent so much time and effort into building this and like you have pride over it and all that. So uh, it gets a little, it was, that was what, what got really tough, I think. GitLab Commit is coming to London. GitLab Commit is GitLab's community event. 
GitLab is changing how people think about tools and engineering best practices. And GitLab Commit is a place for people to learn about the newest practices in DevOps and how tools and processes come together to improve the software development lifecycle. GitLab Commit is the official conference for GitLab, and it's coming to London October 9th at The Brewery. If you can make it to London on October 9th, mark your calendar for GitLab Commit. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash commit and sign up with code COMMITSED to save 30% on conference passes. If you're working in DevOps and you can make it to London, it's a great opportunity to take a day away from the office. Your company will probably pay for it. I'm going to go to a GitLab commit at some point. It won't be this one in London, unfortunately, but I will definitely go because I'm excited about the GitLab ecosystem. It's quite an interesting ecosystem, and seeing it develop has been cool over the course of Software Engineering Daily's lifetime. At GitLab Commit, there are speakers from VMware, Porsche, and GitLab itself. So if you're in London on October 9th, you can check it out. I hope you do check it out. And thanks to GitLab for being a sponsor. So I think this is a good segue into maintaining sanity in in uh, especially as a solo founder and you know this is why one reason i i get a lot of our out of our conversations is i you know i'm i'm a podcaster right i'm not running a SaaS company but like i you know i work a lot and i you know i'm i'm this is i started this by myself and it's you know i mean total first world problems you know good good problems to have but it can be alienating it can be isolating and it's weird you know because you're you're doing something that you love you're bringing something that you really believe in into the world it takes a long time it's fun and but it's psychologically like it's treacherous yes like you can really and it's treacherous in weird ways because like the example of you waking up with with your idea for the lambda based product that's you know that's a fairly innocent example compared to you know what what i'm sure some people could tell you like oh yeah i woke up with this terrible idea i raised a bunch of money 3 years later i you know you know we we sold the company in a fire sale and i was broke you know that kind of thing so just give me some reflections on keeping your head above water if you've made any adjustments or if you have not made any adjustments <laughs> and you're uh you know, looking to make some adjustments. I don't know. Tell me, tell me how you're how you're staying sane. Yeah, I mean, I run. I not always successfully, but I try to run this company with the mindset of if it all goes to zero a year from now, that I will have zero regrets because I made a salary. I got paid. Like the company pays me, so I made a salary. I got to work with absolutely amazing people on something I really wanted to work on. You know, just like any job, if, you know, you leave a job after two, three, four or five years, like hopefully it's like, that was a great experience. And like, you know, companies are supposed to exit really well. And obviously I want that. I want it not for the money, but because that means I actually like made a difference or did something. But I think that's kind of been helpful for not being burnt out is that I've kind of treated it as like focusing on what makes me happy today as opposed to like you know draining my bank account and like all this just for this like you know i want to 
you know, build a billion dollar company someday type thing. And that's not to say that that's not what my goal, my goal is to build something big, but I make decisions day to day that looking back, I won't hopefully won't feel like I wasted five years of my life on it or 10 years or whatever. And as far as like keeping sane, um, I told you before, like I make my managers, I try to make my managers like BICs from time to time. I try to do that too, both inside and outside the company. I'm lucky, so lucky that I've got a good amount of, I like making, doing weird, fun, artsy type things. Like, and I am lucky that I have a gigantic bank account in the form of like a company that I can't just spend recklessly. But like, if I can justify that, it's like, you know, going to help us. then that's awesome. And so far I haven't spent any money on anything that hasn't like, you know, paid it back. But like, you know, I, I ran a conference cause it's just, I wanted, it seemed like a lot of fun to do. And it was, that was a lot of work, but and like, we hired a rap group at the end called rhyme combinator who like did a rap opera musical about starting a company at the end of the conference. Like I got awesome speakers, like people that I had like idolized and looked up to and knew about, like we're speaking at my conference and I got to know and stuff like that. And like, uh, similar to your podcast where like you get to talk to people that five, six years ago, you were just like, I know that name. And now you're like talking to them. I think like I've been able to do things like that, that I'm like, I just, just, it's so cool that I get to do it. And like, it's a conference. So it was a work thing, work paid for all of it, but like it made its money back and sales and all that and marketing and all that. And I, it's, that's been really nice where I, I still like, I don't say I'm an IC per se, but like I still get to have like fun side projects at work that I can spearhead and that help the company and all that. And then I do stuff outside of work as well to kind of like get away from a bit. Like I started an escape room a few years ago. I was really into escape rooms. You started an escape room. Yeah. Oh, you haven't done it yet. Oh, we got to fix this. So my, I used to take my team to escape rooms every time we did an I've offsite. I've done it once. It was awesome. Okay. Do you know which one you did? It was in Austin. I don't remember what it was called, but it, it was awesome. So we would do uh, offsites in different places like Austin. And we did, we did one in Austin as well. And we would do a bunch of like escape rooms as a team bonding thing. It was just like an hour of things that didn't involve drinking and didn't involve you just sitting it's there. It's a wonderful bonding experience. Yeah. You like actually got to like do stuff and work together and hang out and it's fun. But like, and I loved him. And then like two years ago, I had the idea, you know, my girlfriend at the time and I were just talking about like, you know, wouldn't be fun to build an escape room. And I got in my head, like if I'm doing it for team bonding, wouldn't it be great if we did a startup themed escape room? And I was like, oh, okay. So what I can do is like, just all the clues can be you have $1 million, one hour to launch your startup or escape. And um, there's five tracks. There's programming, design, IT, marketing, and product. And you have to do all five in order to launch your startup. And like all the clues, like it's different tracks. So if you're doing the programming one, the clues, you don't have to program, but like it's very logical and like it looks like you're on GitHub or it looks like you're on, you know, programming for like the marketing one. Like, oh, it's like, like on the computer. Oh no, it's a real, it's a real physical thing. It's in, in the tender line. It's an art gallery that I rented out. It's still running. Whoa. It's called Startup Escape. You have like an employee there? Yeah, like... I got four employees. What? <laughs> this is like a side project. I have nothing to do with it now in the sense that like I still own it and like I still like it, but I have a GM that runs it, uh, Luke, and he's been great. Profitable or break even? It was profitable for a while. It started to slow down ever so slightly, so it's still profitable. I've easily made my money back. Dude, you know, nice. It's uh, it's been great. So many startups go through it. Like I, I, it's been that's been awesome. Like so many people I know at different What's companies. What's it cost to rent an art gallery in the Tenderloin? Uh, it's surprisingly cheap because it's in the Tenderloin. I spend uh, three thousand five hundred dollars a month on the space. Okay. Call it another 500 on internet, power, electricity, that fun stuff. So like $4,000 for the space. 
The highest cost on top of that is obviously people. Pay people well. Pay people $50 an hour. So if you play a game, which is like $200, half of that off the bat goes to the person working there because we do $25 an hour with a $50 minimum. So most of the money goes to people and the space. And like if I was trying to like actually make money off this, I'd do things a little bit differently. I would uh, do a little more marketing and all that, but I would spend more of my time at, at it. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to build something. And I, I love one thing that I hate about San Francisco now is the gloominess and the dire, like I moved here in 2008 and like it was a recession. There wasn't much money. Everyone who was here just, they loved building stuff. No one wanted to start a company because they wanted to be a billionaire because there was no path to being a billionaire starting a company or a millionaire starting a company in 2008. Like it was just the dot-com boom and like the 2008 crash. Like it just, there was no money. It was just, you were, if you were in Silicon Valley building a company in 2008, it was cause you were just like really excited. And I miss that. And like, I think that there's a lot of negative things. I could spend two hours talking to you about like the negative things about San Francisco. We talked about the rent right before this, like there's homelessness problems. There's uh, like, we can go on about all that, but like, I still love San Francisco so much and I loved this this escape room startup escape like kind of like a loving parody of Silicon Valley just because like Silicon Valley is fun and we get to do cool stuff all the time and like I want it to be like not a there's one other escape room in San Francisco that's also startup themed and it's like the CEO went on a coke binge is now blowing up the company like you have to like stop him and I'm like that's not what startups are like like it's just I want it to feel like fun and exciting and colorful like I kind of think of startups like I also aside from that I also like started writing songs um i'm not a musician but like writing like parody songs about tech so i'll send if you want to play it on the podcast like i just got one done about um it's called uh it's like the end of the world as we know it parody um by oh R. yeah and it's at uh, the end of web dev as we know it and just goes to like web dev over the past like 20 years like starting with like free where i started but, like, definitely send it to geo cities and all that up oh, until man. like now it's like in, like jquery in the middle and like react and blockchain now and just kind of goes through all that I did like a love song, a love country ballad called 410 Gone, where it uses API status codes to like write a song. And like, you know, so all the status codes, like the numbers, like 200 okay and and all that, like 503 forbidden. I think that's what 503 is. Like, so I would just use all those like words and, and like in the song and like use the status code number and then the words. And uh, so I wrote that. And like, I've just been able to like find really cool, fun, creative outlets that are not that far off from what I do. The startup escape, the escape room, that was my own money. And that was like, had nothing to do with the company, but you know, everything else is give or take like part of the company. And like, I've, I've been able to kind of, I've been, there's a lot of really, which we started out with like really crappy things about starting a company and it's really hard. And I could go on for hours about the bad stuff, not, not to complain, but just like starting a company really changes you in some negative ways. Oh, for sure. You know, you and I just briefly talked about it before this, but like it just changes your interactions with other people. It changes like yeah. you just have to be more confident and always on and always right. selling. And there's a lot of bad things, but like there's also so many good things where like, not to project on you, but like you get to talk to people that are way out of like that you, you, you shouldn't be able, not that you shouldn't be able to talk to, but oh, like absolutely amazing people. Absolutely. I get to do that. I get to like, yeah, like write songs and build escape rooms and run conferences and like be on stage. I'm and pinching like, myself all the time. Yeah. It's that's, it's, tiring that's what i hate about back to the raising money what i was tired by is like yeah like you don't get to just turn yourself off like you're jeff the podcaster you don't get to be well you probably don't call yourself that but like you don't get to like be tired you don't get to like that's right, yeah. and you're actually worse off than me in a way where like 
I can go home and like for a month and like I'm still going to make money. Whereas like you can't do that. Like you actually have to constantly be pitching yourself and like you're only, at least I have some compounding stuff not to make, <laughs> not to ruin your night, but you have like, Oh no, you're not telling you're me anything. I don't as, know. Yeah. Like you're only I'm as really good as your woman. last few podcasts. <laughs> yeah. It's rough, isn't it? And like, we talked about this before. I don't know if you're okay with me, like kind of bring it up, but like it's lonely when you're starting out. Like you have friends, you it have is. like, it's not that you don't have the ability to talk to people. You actually talk to people for a living, but like you have this, you, this lack of camaraderie and all that. And then as you hire people, then you have these people around you. I was reading this um, book, an oral history of the daily show by like John stories interviewed a lot. And no other people. Way. That's a book. Yeah. It was, that sounds awesome. So it was actually made by Comedy Central and like it has like everyone in it, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, like everyone in it. But like they didn't shy away from like the really bad stuff as well. It's fascinating. John Stewart's always been like, not even talk about politics. John Stewart's always been like one of my like inspirations as like just a manager. Like look at like the sprawling landscape that's been created by his show. Like how many oh, yeah. careers he's made. Oh, for sure. And they all love him too. Like he's just a, he he's, I've just always wanted, I've always like looked up to him as a man. He's like a one man SNL. Exactly. Oh, and, and that's just that like people, like he's so good to his employee, according to like the book at least, but like, and there was actually some negatives that are in the book too. They don't gloss over those. But my point with that was that uh, it's worth reading by the way. I really enjoyed it as like a management book almost, but there's one part in 2008, which is when, uh, I don't know the year, but it was the writer's strike. If you remember that and all the writers in all of Hollywood went on strike and they wanted residuals. It was something around DVDs and then streaming were happening and it wasn't their contracts and all that. And like, I was like, my heart was a little, I mean, again, first world problems, but like my heart was like a little broken for John Stewart. Cause he was like talking about like, I thought we were all friends. I thought we we're all in this together. And then like, they started striking against me. And like, I realized I was the man. Like I realized that we weren't friends. Like, and he like paid all their salaries while they were, stri- or, uh, he paid some people's salaries while they're striking. He like gave other people like uh, advances on their paychecks so that they could like survive for these like six months that they're striking. And like my whole point in all that is like, I haven't had this yet, luckily, but like as much as you get along with the people that you work with, like you still, still your company and you still have to be the bad guy sometimes. And that gets really lonely sometimes. And like, I can go to all my employees and I can be very, very honest about everything. Like I don't, hide anything i don't lie about anything i don't nothing like that but like the one thing that you have to be a little you know hold your cards close to the chest on is just how you're feeling about stuff uh, to a certain extent like i always kind of say like i don't lie about the facts but like you know i sometimes i might misrepresent like how i'm feeling about it because you don't think to spiral like you have to kind of be the leader and that gets a little exhausting and tiring after a while like you just kind of want someone to like be your safety net as opposed to the other way around so yeah, there's some, there's, it's, it's not your college friends. No, exactly. Like it's, and I mean, I remember that's one of the weird things about moving to the city and getting really into it and having to be on all the time. It's, it's not exhausting. like your college friends. No, it's, you, it, there's, you're not hanging out and drinking beers and speaking with extreme candor yeah because like let's say that you know you and i are hanging in college and i'm like oh how was your math test you're like i fucking failed it no one cares i'm like that sucks man like (laughs) oh your your teacher's a dick and like that's okay i'm not thinking anything less of you because you did shit in your math test but like if you and i are hanging out right now and you're like how's dreaming going and i'm like we just like lost this gigantic deal like it's it's a leak yeah and it's almost like like i'm like things aren't going well like just in general like i'm just i'm worried then like you're kind of thinking negative about me, which is kind of weird. And like, you have this like bizarre, and I hate this culture of like, everything has to be better and better and better. But like, you just kind of like, you can't 
to a certain extent, be completely honest with your friends? Because like, you still have to be honest. You still have to sell to your friends, which is dumb to a certain extent. So I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I used to play poker. I used to play poker like pretty competitively. There are these forums called the 2 Plus 2 forums. And back when I was playing a ton of poker, it was kind of like my life now where I don't have like, like most of my friends are like business friends, like they're business acquaintances like you. And in the poker days, I used the forums as like, it would be like a, like I would like treat the people like friends. I'd be like, Hey, you know, like I had a really bad downswing today. I lost a bunch of money. I'm feeling crappy. Like, how are you guys doing? You know, everybody doing well. What are you reading lately? You know, like, how's your life going? It was near the end of my poker career that I realized that was the stupidest thing to do because these are not, I mean, they're your acquaintances, but they're your competitors too. And in Silicon Valley, it's a little bit different. Like it's a little more positive sum. We're not really competing with each other. I don't think, unless you're getting into the podcast game, uh, even then there's not I don't a think podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> I hope you're starting a podcast. I'll listen to it. I'm not starting a documentation company. Nor okay. a developer analytics company, <laughs> but like, so it's a little less zero sum. We're not as competitive, but yeah, nonetheless, you can't leak as much. And, you know, that's one of the things like, I love this city too, but I do enjoy going, you know, going home for Thanksgiving these days, much more than I used to actually. Yeah, it's fair. You know, I go home for Thanksgiving and I'm like, wow, God, I just feel like there's a weight that's been lifted off my chest and I can feel yeah. more honest. And Well, to a certain extent, it's kind of like back to the poker thing. I don't know much about poker, but like... I feel like my experience with poker is like the ones who do well and the ones who are more famous, like they're constantly posting on Instagram pictures of like what they're doing with all their winnings and all <laughs> yeah. that. And like everyone does that. Like that's just the world. Like we can't blame Silicon Valley or poker. Like everyone's doing that with Instagram posting the best versions of themselves. But like it's, we've almost gotten to the point and actually I don't think it's a Silicon Valley thing or I don't think it's being a head of a company thing. I think it's just at this point, that's just kind of unfortunately what maybe it's just, you know, you and I are both the oldest we've ever been only gonna get older. Like it's maybe it's just what adulthood is to a certain extent, but like, it just feels like as you get older or at least as more recently, like it's just been harder. It's harder to let your guard down and just be open and honest. And I wonder like what's going to happen. Like, I wonder if maybe we'll start seeing like more anonymous accounts online and things like that, or more like a social network that's more anonymous where like, you're not just showing off to your friends you can actually be more vulnerable. Buzz of a tangent. It is tough to always just be on it. That just gets exhausting. And I, I think, you know, we just, we've talked for like at least an hour here and I, hopefully I didn't come off as being too on or too pitchy <laughs> or too promotional. Nope. Cause like at the end of the day, like I love my company. I love what I'm building. I love the people I work with. Like I'm so stupidly lucky. Like I spend like this weekend, I'm hanging out with like four of them or hiking half dome people that work with. Like I just love the people I work with. So I'm not like, I don't see it as a job, but it's, yeah, it still gets exhausting once in a while. All right. Well, Greg, Oh awesome God, you started with a gloomy thing. We ended with a gloomy thing. <laughs> no, I think we ended honestly. <laughs> Greg, uh, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, great getting to know you the last couple of years. Thank you for having me. Software Engineering Daily reaches 30,000 engineers every weekday and 250,000 engineers every month. If you'd like to sponsor Software Engineering Daily, send us an email, sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Reaching developers and technical audiences is not easy, and we've spent the last four years developing a trusted relationship with our audience, 
We don't accept every advertiser because we work closely with our advertisers and we make sure that the product is something that can be useful to our listeners. Developers are always looking to save time and money, and developers are happy to purchase products that fulfill this goal. You can send us an email at sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Even if you're just curious about sponsorships, you can feel free to send us an email. We have a variety of sponsorship packages and options. Thanks for listening.